You are listening to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming on the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. Iran Berkovich is the recently appointed Director of Eastern Europe for the Jewish Agency. I spoke with him about his important role, which, amongst other things, is, uh, is his dealing with the plight of Jews caught up in the war in Ukraine. I'm speaking with Iran Berkovich, Director of Eastern Europe Jewish Agency. It's good to have you on the show, Iran, and uh, you're a busy man, but you've managed to find a bit of time to speak with us here in Australia. Thank you for having me, David. Thank you. Really happy to be with you today. And uh, you, I think you have a soft spot for Australia because you uh, spent some time here, but we'll get to that uh, in, a, in a moment. Now, you've spent the entirety of your two-plus decade career progressively advancing in Jewish communal service positions with the World Zionist Organization and the Jewish Agency for Israel. Now, could you run through your amazing journey that has taken you to your current role as Director of Eastern Europe for the Jewish Agency. I know it's been a long a long haul, and so uh, I'm sure we can get a, a version of it that uh, will fit into my program. Sure. Usually when I'm trying to do, introduce myself, I'm calling myself a professional Jew, because all what I've done in the recent two decades, it's uh, actually working on streaking Jewish identity and connecting the Jewish communities to Israel. I actually started my uh, journey when I was about to finish my army service from the IDF. I was one of the first five soldiers that elected in a special program to be sent to summer camps in the U.S. And since I stepped into a summer camp in 1998, I fell in love with the story of uh, Jewish life and Jewish community abroad. This summer changed all my life. Since then, I went back to the camp, I think like for four summers. I went back to Israel. I become a year program counselor. Then I moved into a special place and worked for Adassa for a few years as a program director for observant center in Jerusalem for English speakers Olim. Then I went on my long-term shlichut in Australia in 2007. I spent almost four years in Australia. Australia is a special place, and especially the Jewish community there in my art. I'm still keeping on the relationship that I created there over a decade ago, really close to the leadership, really close to the families in Melbourne and in Sydney. I was the Shaliyah for Abonim Drorder and also the representative of Jewish Agency in Okeania. I also worked with the community in New Zealand. On my last day of my Shlichut in Australia, I said, and I believe that I filled it up, that I came to Australia as a Shaliyah, as an emissary. But I left Australia also as an emissary of the Jewish community there because, and also some of my colleagues making jokes about it, that like in everywhere, since then, I'm telling about the community in Australia and giving it as an example of how Jewish life abroad should look like, how it should be connected to Israel. 
And I think that like the Australian Jewish community is a role model for all Jewry around the world. And when I head back from my shlichut in Australia, I work at the Jewish agency, at the shlichut department. I was the director for the short-term shlichuyot. Your audience probably familiar with the Zionist seminars. This is part of the programs that I was charged on and developed back then. After two years in this position, it also was like a close circle for me. The other problem was Shlichet summer camps in the U.S. And after three years, I moved to be the vice director of the Shlichet department. I filled up this position for over a year. And then I moved to the World Zionist Organization, which is the, I should say, one of the organizations that lead the Jewish agency. I was the director for the educational department for four years. Then I moved to a new department, the Zionist Enterprise Department, which I filled up this position till last May. And in last May, I went back home to the Jewish agency to fill up my servant role as the Eastern Europe Regional Director. So that's uh, wrapped it up. Uh, you would say, in a in a nutshell for us, and given what you've been telling us. Iran, would you say your life is going to be dedicated to serving Jewish communities uh, with your kind of resume? Would you ever, could you ever be considered for any other kind of employment? Not really, not really. You know, in my family, I have two older brothers. One is a lawyer and the other one is a counter. And my parents used to tell me that, like, I should be a doctor. If you took me before the time uh, that I was being sent to be a shaliach to summer camp in the U.S. So my plans at the end of the IDF was like all other Israel is to finish my army service, to do some walks, get in some money, to travel around the world, and then go back to Israel and start a medical school. But as I said before, this experience changed my life, and I decided to dedicate my uh, professional life to Jewish communities abroad. Are you interested at all in uh, politics That as a as an exit from what you're doing now? I'm just thinking uh, of, uh, I'm thinking of uh, the Minister for Diaspora Affairs, Amichai Chikli, who's not very popular. His job might become available. I think that one of the bonus of working in an organization like a Jewish agency, that the politics doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we're working with every political party that all, every ministry in Israeli government. Because at the end of the day, our goals are, I think, common for most of the Zionist parties in the third Knesset and in the previous Knessets. And this is like strengthening Jewish identity and connecting people to Israel. It doesn't matter if you belong to the left side or to the right side. We always feel the common language and we find ourselves working together with every minister. Although it does say on your resume that you're a conference delegate of the Israeli Labour Party. Uh, does the Israeli Labour Party still exist? I'm being, I'm being yes. here Iran. It was really interesting experience in the past. Okay. I done it for a few months because on my first uh, degree I studied political science and I decided to experience the political life. But for my personality, after three months, I got into the conclusion that politics is not for me. I believe 
that I feel much more to the field of doing rather than to design the, the goals. You're doing rather than talking. So what are your responsibilities in your position of Director of Eastern Europe for the Jewish Agency? What, what do you do as, as part of your job? A lot, first of all. As you may know, it took us like a long time to schedule this interview. I'm actually building like a new regional department at the Jewish Agency because till the war broke down between Russia and Ukraine, we used to have Russian speakers' desk. And since the war started, it's actually forced us to divide the region. And I'm actually the first regional director for Eastern Europe, which is basically contained almost 18 countries with Jewish communities from Ukraine up to Germany. And I think the most challenging thing is right now it's to work with the Jewish community in Ukraine. As you may know, before the war, we had uh, 200,000 Jews in Ukraine. We believe that like 50,000 left since the beginning of the war. Some of them to Israel, almost 20,000. The others like went into small communities around Europe, the majority of them based in Germany for different reasons. That's what kept me busy most of the time. We're actually right now dealing with finding a place which is going to be kind of a camp in the Transcarpathic area between Ushgard and, uh, and, and Munch. It's considered to be a safe zone in Ukraine, and that place should be our hub for all our activities, uh, what we call activities under fire, because Ukraine is still under war. So this hub should be the place where people can feel safe and still thinking about Aliyah, still explore the Jewish identity, still connect to Israel, if it's in summer camps or conference or any other programs that we develop uh, through the years in Ukraine. Meanwhile, I also come back from two weeks ago, I was traveling around Ukraine and we tried to find shelters to bring back our activities. For example, not like in Australia, Jewish agency function is actually activity, a body that like run the activities from A to Z. So for example, we have Sunday schools and we have Ulpanim, Hebrew classes for adults. So we need a safe place for this, and I'm happy to say that we find some shelters in Odessa and in Dnepro and in Kiev and in Lvov. So we're planning to bring our programs back to life in the safe places in those cities after Sukkot. Okay. Now there's, as I've found on your um, uh, website for the Jewish Agency, yeah, there's a, a new phenomenon. But actually, before I ask you that. You referred to the Russian desk in, uh, of the Jewish Agency. There was a court hearing in, uh, in Russia about the, the agency and its uh, permission to operate or to continue operating in, the, uh, in Russia. What was the outcome of that? Is it still uh, hanging or what's the story there? Okay, because I don't have anything with Russia. I have a colleague, Milana, which one in the activities of the Jewish Agency in uh, Russia. From my best knowledge right now, it's still in court. Mm-hmm. I know that the foreign ministry in Israel is highly involved in the negotiation. 
and in the, the situation. Obviously, the issue is not about the Jewish agency activity. It's bigger than that. And this is why the foreign ministry is highly involved in this. All right. So uh, people can do their own research to find out what's going on. But uh, as you say, it uh, hasn't been finalised. still ongoing. Yeah. Now, a, a, new, a new phenomenon emerged with the reappearance of Jewish communities of Eastern and East Central Europe in the last decade or so, well, actually, this article that I'm reading probably is a bit dated because uh, it refers to the last decade or so since the fall of Soviet communism. But uh, mm-hmm. we're still uh, seeing only uh, two or three decades since that happened. Now, various mm-hmm. organisations arrived on the scene at the time, Chabad, uh, religious groups from reform and conservative organisations, Zionist bodies, including Shlechim, uh, uh, started to yep. come and as as it says on uh, your website i like this ex- the way it describes it it was like a series of electric currents being applied to the body of a comatose stroke victim to see if there would be any response would the patient die on the operating table despite the massive medical and support staff that it was receiving now the answer it seems was no do you want to uh, perhaps comment on uh, how the uh, communities have been flourishing since the fall of communism? Yeah, I think that like part of our success in what happened in Ukraine, and when I mention success, it's the fact that like in three months, you know, the war started the end of February 22. And after three months, due to this cooperation between the organization and due to the hard work of all those years, we had five different stations around the borders and every Jews that crossed the border, the first sign that he saw it was Jewish agency sign and other organization signs, the JBC. And those of them that crossed the border know exactly what it's mean Jewish agency and what it's mean JBC. I was running the station in Romania, for example. We used to have those stations across the border also in Poland, in Hungary and in other countries. One day I asked a person that walked into our tents, how we know that we are here for him and people for him? And he said, what do you mean how I know? I went to Jewish agency camps as a kid. I went to your Ulpan classes and I participated also in the weekly meetings in my city in Kharkiv. So the fact that those Jewish organizations was in the field since the collapse of the USSR for 20 years and create Jewish activities and create Jewish communities' lives in Ukraine actually help us in this kind of operation. I should add to this that like one of the things that like surprised me for good is the cooperation between the organization. You know, usually we talk about the competition that we have between organization and the feeling that like sometimes uh, this organization steps on the tones of the other organization and they're working on the same field. In every organization, I think since the beginning of the war, know exactly what is goal and what is doing. Okay, we know that as Jewish agency, our mission is to take care of the well-being. Okay, we are focusing on education, we are focusing on encouraging Aliyah in Ukraine. 
other organizations, JDC, taking care of the other needs. If people need medicine, if people need like shelters and etc. They are the best for this. Chabad is taking care of the religious life in the community. So I think if there is something good that I hope that's going to continuity, hopefully very soon when the war will be over, it's the cooperation between the organization and the fact that we are working together. Now, without question, Ukraine is a significant focus of your efforts in your current position, as you've been saying already, and you've only just recently returned from a trip to the uh, Ukraine. Yeah. Can you tell us what uh, the Jewish agency is doing in particular to assist Jews there as a consequence of the war? I mean, how much of your effort is involved in assisting people in situ compared to helping them uh, emigrate to uh, to Israel, for example? And for those coming yeah. to Israel, are they going to stay or are they going to return in large numbers to the Ukraine once the war ends? I would like to point out a few points as an answer to your question. The first one, we all need to realize that the war is still going on. Okay, we have the feeling, and sometimes it's not up on the news, but every day something happens in Ukraine. Last week, as I said before, I spent like three days in Odessa, but I spent also two four nights at shelter because siren came and I heard the bombs above my head. This is the reality where people, how people live in Ukraine or parts in Ukraine, especially if you get in close to the eastern border. We all need to be aware to this. This is the first point. The second point, our focus in Ukraine right now, it's taking the knowledge that we got in Israel from the different operation that Israel ran in the northern border and in the southern border with Gaza and bring this knowledge to the community in Ukraine. So, for example, we put in our, we have security funds and we invest in lots of money of creating shelters. Shelters are really needed now for the community, why it's needed. By the way, these funds coming through the donations of Jewish communities around the globe. It's coming from JFNA in North America, but it's also coming from Karen ISO. That means that people in the Jewish community that donate money to Karen ISO, this is one of the impacts. Okay, they're giving shelter to Jewish people in Ukraine, whether they can have schools there, whether they can have like informal educational activity there, whether they can have, they can celebrate Rosh Hashanah. Okay, the communities in Odessa celebrate Rosh Hashanah in a shelter. Thanks to the gifts that we collect from the Jewish people around the globe. The third thing that we try to create in Ukraine, it's bringing back, as I said before, life to normal as possible under the certain situation. So we try to bring back our formal education life. And it's not easy. We try to back our informal education activities. We try to train leaderships in the community. I mean, it's come to resilience. So we try to create a different action rather to string the well-being of the community under this uh, situation. So the last part of what I was asking in terms of people from Ukraine coming to Israel, what uh, what's uh, the numbers there? So since the beginning of the war, we have like 20,000 Olim. This is how we call them, Jewish, that decide to move the, the life uh, to Israel. It's really interesting because the situation in Ukraine not allow males 
cross the border if if they are in the age of 18 up to 68 the majorities of the olim are actually a lot of females with young families females with the kids or adult people we just run a pool between them in the recent few months and the answer said that, by the way we asked them the question if the war will be over soon will you go back to stay in israel so over 90 percent of them say that like they prefer to stay in israel and they're waiting for the husbands and to the brothers to join them this is another mission by the way that we fill up like we're working with the close groups of relatives of those women that decide to make a real wedding, waiting for the husband in Israel. So we have in like the groups of those relatives, different cities in Ukraine that we're working with them and, and prepare them for Aliyah. Because we believe that at the minute that the peace will come to Ukraine, some of them will choose to join the relatives in Israel. We try to prepare them as best as we can. I would like also to mention that we are still working in this region with a few communities that decide to stay in Europe. Some of them still have an open question if they want to make Aliyah, and we try to present them this option, also provide them some Hebrew classes. The reason that they are not making Aliyah are different reasons. Some of them believe that like they are waiting close to the border to the relatives and they want to make this Aliyah when the husbands and the brothers can join them. And some of them staying there like in the border because like uh, close to the borders of Ukraine because they didn't make a demand yet. Okay, it's not a clear situation. They don't know how the war will be end and when. Uh, so we also like putting lots of efforts on this like Jewish refugee communities. Most of them located, as I said before, in Germany, but like we also have communities in Warsaw, in Poland. We have a community in Bucharest. We have a community in Budapest. Here in our office in Budapest, every day in the afternoon, we have an afternoon school for Jewish refugee kids, which is highly important. We got like over. 120 kids every week coming to participate in our activities and the struggling it's the struggling like we need to bear in mind that those people run away they didn't make a decision as we want most of the jewish people make this decision under peace to make a leader. okay they run away that was the rescue option it's jewish people here we try to provide them the tools that if they choose to come to Israel after this period that they still choose to live in Europe, they have the tools to succeed in Israel. So this is why we put lots of efforts on teaching them Hebrew. We also have like professional classes, okay, for doctors and for nurses. Because when they arrive to Israel, they need to pass an exam, so we try to prepare them. So we take in different action rather to prepare them as much as possible to the option of making an year. So you're highlighting uh, what's going on uh, continually. I would assume that people who want to uh, throw some support uh, behind the Ukrainian effort, uh, they can just uh, communicate with the United Israel Appeal here in Australia, and they will have a vehicle to uh, to get money into uh, the hands of, of your team and, and, and others uh, who are supporting people in Ukraine. Totally, totally. I'll just explain how much it's important. 
every cent and every penny that like will be invest on those farms in the UAA or in Jaffna if you're in North America. Uh, I'm happy to say that Jaffna are also going to start a new campaign to raise money uh, to support the communities in Ukraine and in Russia because it's highly needed. It's highly needed. You just need to understand, for example, let me share a personal story. A few weeks ago, I was visiting uh, one of our summer camps and I met Sasha. Sasha is in five grade. And I saw him all the time, ironically, you know, like in a, a state that underwore, smiling and like running. So I took him to the side and tried to find out like where his home is from Kharkiv. He told me that his house destroyed during the first months of the war. And I asked him, why you are so happy? And he told me, Iran, this is like one of the few times that I can come together with my friends. Because during COVID, we were close at home. Then we have five months at school, and then the war starts. I don't have time even like to spend like with friends in my age. And then I realized that like even before we start running activities for them about the Jewish identity and about Israel, the fact that we bring them all together, this is a real need for those kids. Kids in year five just spend like three or four months together with his peers at schools two years ago. Since then, we just like spend this time in front of the computer, study at home. He didn't get this opportunity. By the way, to get from his home to the campsite, it took him like 20 hours on the train. I'm not talking even about like the fact that the parents feel so confident in our activities that they're willing to send their kids during the war, during this time, on a train of 20 hours, rather than like those kids will have the experience of a Jewish camp life. So when people put in this donation to those amazing organizations, UIA, Jaffna in North America, this money is really become useful for us to run those activities. And as much as we have funds, we get more shelters in more cities in Ukraine. And we'll be able also like to run those kinds of activities. If it's in Sunday afternoon schools, if it's like other informal education for those kids, this is part of like our goal to take care of the well-being of the Jewish community in Ukraine, also under this uh, kind of situation. Well, we're speaking uh, before uh, Yom Kippur, but I uh, will certainly hope with the Kol Nidre appeals that uh, go across the the whole community that. Uh, a good slice of that will uh, will come your way. Now you're based in Hungary. Yeah. Uh, you said that the uh, the centre you've set up in in Hungary is 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 the, for the first time. Why why was Hungary picked? If you're looking around outside of Ukraine, where is the largest Jewish community is? So Hungary. Is the largest community. We're assuming that there are over 100,000 Jews living in Hungary. Really? The majority of them, yeah, the majority of them based in Budapest. And they have a few challenges. One of the challenges that if you're looking into the new generation, 
I just read an article that point out research actually that point out that 55% of them getting into marriage with non-Jew for example anti-semitism especially outside of Budapest the recent polls are raised it's really interesting why come and how come in places where no Jewish life Uh, and where Jewish are not living anymore, there is a race in anti-Semitism, but this is a fact, and this is part of the challenges of this community. By the way, the majority of this community define themselves as uh, 80% define themselves as not religious. So it's a real challenge for us how to connect the young generation, the young adults, into the Jewish identity and also to Israel under this situation. Yeah, I'm certainly surprised that uh, you uh, give me a number as large as 100,000. What I've seen in documentation uh, across the internet puts the figures more uh, like about 50,000 in terms of the Hungarian Jewish community. If you make it 100,000, you've got a community which is not uh, dissimilar to uh, the numbers we have in Australia. We actually counting Jewish by the law of them. Maybe they are not Jewish by the halacha, or maybe they are not Jewish, even they are not identifying themselves as Jewish, but the fact that their grandmother was Jewish, we consider them to be a target audience, because by the law of return, they are totally legible for Aliyah, and this is why we target them as part of our audience, part of the target audience that we try to reach out. And you need to understand that like it's really common phenomena. Okay. Um, last week I got like I think he's a guy like 38 years old walking into our building and told us that like he just find out that his grandmother was Jewish. And he would like to explore what it's mean to be Jewish. And ask him, like, what do you mean you just discovered out? So he told me, like, listen, like, usually when we went to my grandmother's house, she didn't, like, put uh, meat and cheese together on the table. She used to light candles on Friday night. But, like, I thought it just like tradition, a family tradition. I didn't connect it to Judaism. And then when I explore my uh, family roots, we find out that my mother was born and raised as a Jew, and I would like to find more about it. So this is one example, and it's happening, like, really often, I should say, Mm. like, people walking into our place or to other congregation or to other Jewish organization and say that they discover they have Jewish roots and they would like to find out what it's mean for them. Yeah, there's a story, I can't remember the, the, the people exactly, but this goes into Germany where there were a couple who were, who were uh, uh, Nazis and uh, they discovered, uh, both of them discovered that they had uh, Jewish roots and that uh, completely changed their lives and they, uh, and they became uh, practising uh, Orthodox Jews even following their discovery. It's an extraordinary story. Just to finish with you, Iran, so you can get to work, what is it like for you as an Israeli living in Hungary? Uh, can you make some kind of a, a comparison, a quality of life comparison? I know you've only been there for a short time, but what uh, what what's your sense? It's a beautiful city, I should say, Budapest. And our office located in the entrance to the Jewish Garden. 
Budapest was mean a lot for Jewish community, especially before the World War II. It was a central place for Jewish people here in Eastern Europe. Through the days, I understand why. Uh, by the way, it's located in the center between the eastern countries to the western countries in Europe or the central countries in Europe. It was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And I think that's fascinating place to learn about the history of the place and the connection to the, the Jewish people to this place. And for me, it's also close the circle. I should say, my grandparents didn't born in Budapest, but they're born like not so far away from here. They're born in Romania, uh, close to the border with Hungary. And for me, it's also closing a circle because I'm coming back to the place more or less where my grandparents and my roots belong to. And, and it's another closing circle for me. Are you going to be learning Hungarian on the job? Is that uh, considered to be significant uh, for you to do? Is it considered to be important that you learn Hungarian or is is English uh, uh, going to be adequate? I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. I'm doing my best to learn Hungarian. It's really challenging language. It doesn't close. It's not close to any other language. It's really unique. Some of the people saying that like learning Hungarian, it's like learning, it's like even difficult than learning Chinese. <laughs> But I'm taking some classes. I'm taking some classes because it's very important to connect to the people here through the language. I really believe that language is much more than like the ability to speak. It's also open a gate for culture. And rather to understand the Hungarian, the Jewish culture here, I need to speak the language. This is why I'm putting an effort in yes, this. I agree 100%. Well, I really thank you very much. It's been... Uh worthwhile being patient to, to to get this interview to happen with you run and i think that your role is uh, is an extremely important one and i think uh, you're the man for the job and i uh, certainly uh, commend you on your efforts and thank you very much for giving us some time thank today you, david. in australia thank you david let me use this opportunity and wish all the people that i know in the jewish community in australia and those who i don't know a year of peace for them and for the rest of the Jewish people around the world in Israel and in Ukraine. And I wish that this upcoming year will bring a peace with them. Yes, I echo your sentiments exactly. Thank you very much okay. again. Thank Welcome. you, David. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a conversation with Eran Berkovich, who was the recently appointed Director of Eastern Europe for the Jewish Agency. My next guest is local filmmaker Danny Ben-Moshe, who is in the process of creating an immersive virtual reality film which will take the viewer on a journey into the widespread movement in Israel protesting over the judicial overhaul program of the current government. Before I speak with Danny live, we're going to listen to some of the audio at the beginning of his work in progress titled Demonstrating for Democracy on the Front Line of Israel's Protest Movement. In what has become a regular Saturday night in Tel Aviv and across Israel, Israelis from all walks of life gather for the 14th week in a row to protest. They come in opposition to a plan by the most right-wing and religious government in Israel's history to curtail the power of the Supreme Court. 
the government won the election, that they are changing the democratic system that brought them to power. The government has its supporters, but the majority of Israelis oppose the change, fearing that without this check and balance, Israel will go from being a Jewish and democratic state to an autocracy and theocracy. And so they come, week after week after week. I welcome filmmaker Danny Ben-Mosher, whose voice you just heard in a teaser that Danny has produced to be shown soon at the Jewish International Film Festival in Melbourne and Sydney. How's it going, Danny? Don't seem to have Danny on the line. I'll uh, just go to a bit of music and we'll get him back. Your short film that we've been just introducing is going to be on at the uh, Jewish Film Festival. Yes. It's, uh, it's only five minutes, but uh, you use uh, video time-lapse uh, photography to squeeze an awful lot into five minutes. So how do you plan to develop your film further from, from here? I would say two things. It's a virtual reality film. So the idea is that people, aren't, viewers aren't watching protests in Israel as if they were sitting in front of their TV watching the news or something or a documentary at night. It's immersive. So you put on a headset um, and you look around and you are there. You are in it. You are at it. And I'm not sure if you've ever watched a, a, a VR, virtual reality film, but by definition, they're all shorts. So I hope this film will be, I expect this film to be about 12 minutes long. Um, but there's only so long viewers can stay in a headset for. So pretty much um, I have shot more or less everything I need to shoot to cut the film. But uh, every... Uh, you know, every second of what you shoot and what you cut and what you edit uh, takes time and money. So um, I will complete it when I have the funding to do so. Is this the first time you've uh, produced a film of this kind? Uh, no, I actually made a virtual reality film for Melbourne's Holocaust Museum. A few years ago, I was making a documentary, a 2D, a regular documentary, or I was developing a 2D regular documentary called The Last Survivors. And I was kind of tracking the process the museum was going through as it was transitioning from having survivors that the 30,000 school kids that go there each year could meet to not. And they had different programs and initiatives to sort of um, deal with that issue. And I was at a documentary, a major documentary festival overseas, and spent a lot of time at virtual reality sessions and watching virtual reality films. And I thought, hey, forget the 2D documentary that I'm making about, you know, what's going on. Let's create a virtual reality film with survivors now, so that when given the finite reality, when they're no longer around for the kids to meet in person, they can put on a headset and meet them 
virtually and we filmed uh, one documentary which is going to be released very soon in the new VR room, in the virtual reality room at the Holocaust Centre here in Melbourne and, um, and, and so I had some experience with it and I've seen a few just, you know, as a consumer and as a filmmaker and then when I saw what was going on in Israel I realised this was something of epic historic proportions. Now imagine if we could go back in time and be part of the masses flocking to the Kotel after the Six-Day War on Sukkot. Or if it was the 29th of November 1947 and the UN has just voted on partition and we could be dancing a horror in the streets of Tel Aviv. What is going on now, whichever way it pans out, um, is a major moment in Israeli and Jewish history. And when the history of this country and of our people is written this will be a major chapter in it so i also wanted to capture it in a way not only for people to experience now the enormity of what's going on um but also in the future as well so when the film is screened uh, this time around uh, people will just see it uh, as a normal piece of cinema you won't have all the gadgetry there to enable them to experience no, no. No, the Jewish International Film Festival do want to show it with the gadgetry once it's finished. Um, but obviously I need to finish it yet, but hopefully next year. So it will just be projected onto a 2D screen, a regular screen. It will look slightly stretched because it's, a, it's actually a circular image, but it's still, it's still very watchable. Um, it's just you don't get the immersive experience. But given the currency of the the issue the urgency of the issue the importance of the issue um it was decided to to share it uh on on 2d screen um at this year's festival yes it's uh, certainly uh, very interesting from what i've uh, seen of it uh, uh to date are you collaborating with uh, others in the making of the film no, well, I mean, every film is really a kind of a collaboration of sorts. I mean, I've had two, I've got two virtual reality cinematographers in Israel that I've used. Um, uh, it's not a kind of a co-production or anything like that, but, you know, I have a crew of people, um, a local producer who's helped me on the ground in Israel, uh, an editor who's cutting it uh, in Israel. So in as much as any film is a collaborative piece of work, this is a collaborative piece of work, but it's not like, you know, uh, in any formal sense, a collaboration with another production company or using a director in Israel or, or anything like that. Yes, you're very hands-on with the works you do, uh, doing the narration and, and involved in so many facets of uh, the production of, of what you do uh, with, uh, with your filmmaking, aren't you, Danny? Well, it's... it's I mean, in some of my films, in this film you hear my voice and I'm in it. Um, in other films, I've got another film that's coming out, um, which is a more mainstream, you know, television, cinema film uh, called Revenge, which will also be a gif. Um, I'm not in it at all. It's a matter of, you know, does it fit in the story and what's needed to tell that particular story? So I think, you know, different, different stories uh, are to be told in different ways and and that's true in terms of narration or non-narration 
or me as the filmmaker or not, as the case may be. And it's also true about virtual reality. Virtual reality, if I was making a film, I don't know, about, um, I don't know, uh, a day in the life of Melbourne, and I just wanted to show that to people around the world, well, I don't need to make that in virtual reality. If, I mean, obviously I could, right? But if there is something going on that you want people to experience and that is, and is told that the reality of it is 360. So when you're standing there, as I have over many weeks, in a protest, and in front of you there might be a the Declaration of Independence. To the left of you there may be a band playing. To the right of you there may be, as in a street band, to the right of you there might be um, some kids banging drums. And behind you there may be a, um, a bimas, stands with speakers right and above you there might be some flag flying through the sky well so you really want to see it all in 360 so that's kind of hopefully i've chosen the right device to tell this story in the right way um but you know the perils of filmmaking i've just got to wait till i till i raise enough money to complete it so that people can actually see it in, in VR, watch it on headsets in a, in a curated way. But I'm very grateful to, you know, the donors of, who are all from the Melbourne Jewish community that have enabled me to, to shoot and produce what I have to date. So you were in Israel earlier this year. Were you there specifically to capture footage of yeah. these uh, pro-democracy protests, as you refer yeah. to them? Yes. Yes, yes. I went to Israel specifically to capture this moment because, you know, if I wanted to make a film about, I don't know, swimming pools in Melbourne, <laughs> I could do that this year, next year, or the year after. Um, sometimes there are moments that are moments and they need to be captured. And this story is moving so fast. And what is happening to the state of Israel, to the Zionist movement, and the threat to its future is so immediate that um, um, I basically felt a sense of urgency to go. And I'm very glad that I was very fortuitous that I did go when I did, because I was there in March on the weekend where Defence Minister Gallant um, was fired and then he was not fired, and the, the, the protests took on a whole new lease of life. And I have that footage from when the protesters went onto the Ayalon freeway, which was really this unprecedented turning point in what's, what I call the first stage of the protests, which was really from the beginning of the year till the passage of the reasonableness law at the end of July. And then, you know, um, so that's kind of what I've captured to date. So I went specifically... I went specifically to film. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but what happened, happened. And then I was there over, you know, a crucial period of time in the Jewish-Israeli calendar. Pesach, Yom HaShoah, Yom HaZikaron. Uh, I was there when Ben Gvir, you know, very um, provocatively went to a military cemetery on Yom HaZikaron on Fallen Soldiers Day, when on Memorial Day, when the Mishpachot Shekulot, when the bereaved families asked him not to attend. Um, and literally, it was such a horrible experience 
because, you know, when anything's horrible in real life, it's good in film, but literally fights erupting around me in a cemetery between families. It, it was just so painful, and you just realise if that, in the holy holies of Israel, can happen, then anything can happen. Um, and I have that on film, and then I hoped to be... I, hoped, I thought I'd finished the film on Yom Atzmaut, where I was back in Kaplan in Tel Aviv, and it was kind of Israel turned 75, and the film was going to end with which way will the country go, you know, down a, a democratic route, pluralistic path, the traditional path of being a Jewish and democratic state, or a kind of extremist, fundamentalist, theocratic one, anti-democratic one, or a liberal democratic one. We don't know. And that's kind of how I was leaving it. And then, of course, the, legislate one, the legislation happened, and this march to Jerusalem, it was on a whole new level. So I got back to Israel, um, filmed the National Day of Protest at the airports where mortar cannon came out on protesters um, with the march to Jerusalem and then being in Israel on the day that the legislation uh, passed in the Knesset. So people ask me, am I done with it? Um, well, the story isn't done, but, you know, at some point you have to draw a line as a filmmaker, otherwise you keep going forever. Um, I'm exploring 2D opportunities for long-form filmmaking of this, which would mean shooting over the next two to three years. But that's really up to uh, broadcasters and whether they want to commission me to do so. I, I, I think when the votes, when the when the when the, the the guts of the Supreme Court hands down their decision on their reasonableness bill, you know that is going to be such a moment because it's clear that the guts. If, the, if, and we don't know which way that the guts is going to rule, that they say that the government's reasonable law is un unreasonable, that they rule on the law that the government has said they can't rule on, um, there's going to be such a constitutional crisis in the country that has no constitution. Who knows which way it could go? I would very much like to be there for that because the talk of what might happen at that time... But, uh, you know, that all, at the moment, that, that would all depend on when that happens, if it happens, if there's film funding. Um, but whether I film that or not, I know I have enough content to create a documentary that captures this particular moment. And the story, it's not, I'm not telling the story of this issue. I'm not telling the story of Israel's constitutional history. I'm telling... Uh, the story of the protest movement, um, because, you know, it's been described as, um, you know, I, I'm interested in inspiring stories. And I think this is an incredibly inspiring story because democracy is under assault uh, globally. You know, we, we, we've seen it. You don't need to look any further than Trump in America um, to know that. And I think, you know, when you, what the Israelis say is they're not going to be Poland, Hungary or Turkey democracies that will roll back and democracies can be rolled back and i think israel the, the protest movement is a shining light um on civil society standing up for what they believe in um and so i think it's a story that can be that is relevant to you know other countries and other peoples so you know as a filmmaker all you can do is hopefully do justice to 
to the story you're trying to tell. And just quickly, Danny, how can people support your film if uh, they want to get behind it? Uh, well, if they were interested enough to do so, they can either just con- find me and contact me, or they can go to the Documentary Australia website. I think it's just doc- documentaryaustralia.org.au or something like that, Documentary Australia. And if they put in the search uh, engine Israel, the film will come up and people can make tax-deductible donations. Well, thanks very much for talking to us on Israel Connection today, Danny. All right, pleasure to do so. Thanks for the opportunity. Good luck with your film. Cheers, bye. You've been listening to a local filmmaker, Danny Ben-Moshe, whose short film titled Demonstrating for Democracy on the Frontline of Israel's Protest Movement will be screened at the Jewish International Film Festival in November. Now, last week, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu delivered a speech to the United Nations General Assembly, and I'm just going to play some comments about that speech from uh, I-24 News reporter Mike Wagenheim, who is based in the United States and was a guest on this show three months ago. You know, it's oftentimes said uh, that you really don't understand uh, the Middle East unless you're there, unless you can see it. It's very difficult with uh, the, the complexities of the region and how close everybody is together and where the hostilities lie to really understand it. And numerous Israeli officials have said that over the years. I think Netanyahu, and sometimes those visual aids are a little bit cheesy, but I think he got the point across in how much the region has really changed over the years, and especially as of late with that diagram that he used showing the Abraham Accord countries and Sudan being added to the mix, although that's obviously taken a backseat to the strife there, and how that kind of circle that used to uh, surround Israel, that circle of hostilities, has really narrowed so much over the last few years. And with the, the economic corridor that was announced at the uh, the G20 summit and the route that will run through the heart of Israel and through the heart of the region, connecting it uh, to the rest of the world, I think really goes to show Netanyahu saying, I, I, hey, I've been talking about this for decades now, how this can really become a reality. I think with just a simple uh, visual aid, he was able to kind of demonstrate uh, his his vision and how it's uh, how it's turned out over the years. Something else that, that jumped out at me, how much time he spent on the Palestinian issue. I really didn't expect for him to go on that long, but something that was said uh, behind the scenes that he's now put out in the open is that Saudi normalization with Israel, Israel's willing to, to make concessions, but the Palestinians, as has been in the past, cannot be allowed to hold the veto over progress in the region. That's what was held up uh, progress so long with other Arab countries that uh, that was finally broken up uh, with the signing of the Abraham Accords. Now Netanyahu wants to assure that the Palestinians do not go back to holding the veto over future uh, progress and that was made clear behind the scenes over the uh, course of the UN General Assembly this week speaking to various Israeli officials and Netanyahu now putting it out there uh, for the public to hear. Um, I think that was the main point he tried to make in terms of the Palestinians. One other thing that jumped out at me, I, I believe it was a mistake in speaking about Iran. He said that Iran must face a credible nuclear threat. I don't think that's what Netanyahu meant to say. The, the term has been credible military threat. Iran must face a credible military threat for them to uh, get the message that they need to back down from their menacing activities in the region, back down from the advancement of their nuclear program. Critics might make something of uh, that that 
faux pas from Netanyahu, but I believe the term he meant to use was credible military threat. And as expected, it said at the top of the program, exporting Israeli innovation and technology throughout the world has done much more good than harm, especially in developing countries and something that Israel tries to put a happy face on every day. And I think Netanyahu kind of brought that to the tail end of his speech, saying, hey, we, we can be a force for good, uh, despite all the the bad news that, that traditionally comes uh, from that part of the world. So all in all, a very Netanyahu-esque speech. He did not touch at all on the internal um, uh, strife uh, back home, but uh, more focused on uh, regional and global issues. And by the way, on tip of the cap to Joe Biden, he gave credit to Donald Trump for peace, and he said Joe Biden can be that type of leader as well. I'm not sure that Trump will want to hear that, but there's certainly something that I think Joe Biden uh, needed to hear publicly is that uh, he's put on the same uh, uh, line, uh, same par as Trump in uh, in trying to advance uh, peace for Israel with the rest of the world. Well, and Mike, as you said, he didn't mention those internal debates that we're seeing here in Israel, yet those internal debates are now taking the streets there in New York. What can you tell us about the protests that Netanyahu's speech might have sparked? Well, they're going on. The protests have been going on. Let's see, this is 42nd Street behind us, so about five blocks that way along 47th Street. There's a large uh, contingent of Israeli expats and uh, American Jews who are protesting in an area out there. They, they, they've been protesting all week here at various locations, Times Square, out on the um, the uh, the Hudson uh, behind the building here uh, at uh, the hotel where uh, Netanyahu is staying at, at the hotel where the meeting between Netanyahu and Biden was held. They, they had an itinerary throughout the week here. Uh, it, mixed messages, uh, really, from, from the crowd. It's uh, oftentimes spoken of from that uh, protesting crowd. They want to preserve democracy. I asked several throughout the week, hey, what does that really mean? Does it mean the end of the Netanyahu government? Does it mean the end of the judicial reform package? Uh, the, what, what, what exactly does that entail? And, and there really hasn't been a, a terribly coherent message into what it means to save democracy. Maybe that's just human nature. Democracy means different things to different people. It means different things to different countries. But it's, it's been a very divergent message based on who you speak to throughout the week in terms of the protest. I can say they've been very diligent. They've been at it almost 24-7. Uh, they've been very loud. They've been very direct. How much the message really resonates with, with, with the crowd they're trying to get it to resonate with, I, I think only time will tell in, in terms of how much of an impact it's really had. Definitely back home, but not sure yet here in, in New York City. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.